The fourth sign. The sign of the pieces of hair, which we studied on Sunday, but let's read through it quickly. Chapter 5, As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. And then take the scales for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city. Now you understand. It's the J-pad. Okay? So he's going to take some of his hair, a third of his hair. He's going to put it right there on the tablet and he's going to burn it up. And then he says, Then you shall take one third and strike it with a sword all around the city. And so he takes his sword and begins to chop up the hair on the ground around this tablet that represents Jerusalem. And one-third you shall scatter to the wind. So he starts to toss his third of his hair out like this, and I will unsheathe the sword behind them. Verse 3, take also a few in number from them. Bind them in the edges of your robes, which you will do. Take some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. And from it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. So we see this picture of even the exiles in Ezekiel's robe. Even among the exiles, some are going to burn in their rebellion. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. (laughs) I have set her at the center of the nations with lands all around her. Why? So that everyone could see the work of the Lord. Again, we talked about this on Sunday. The nations surrounding Jerusalem, God didn't choose a little backwater town. He chose the center of the earth. He chose the middle of nations, the causeway between the nations of the ancient world to show who He was, what He was about, and how He did things. So that the world could know. Why aren't you more clear with us, God? (laughs) And he does this in our lives, by the way. He gets right in the center of things. The only way, in my opinion, that a person could not be saved is by sidestepping God. By ignoring the opportunities. I believe at the, the throne judgment that we see in Revelation chapter 20, when people stand before God, there will be countless numbers of people who realize for the first time how many opportunities God set right in front of their face, but they walked right by it. The Lord set Jerusalem at the center of nations. He sets His Spirit in the middle of our lives and says, I have what you need. And I have the freedom you so desire. Verse 6, But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations, and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her, for they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations around you, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And so it's the sign of the pieces of hair. We talked about this on Sunday. It's a hairy prophecy. It's a close shave for Ezekiel. Verse 9 going on, And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Huh. I'm never going to do this again, he says. But that was 586 B.C. I seem to recall something happening in 70 A.D. that was as bad or worse. I I recall after that the Holocaust, which was worse still. I'm never going to do something like this again, the Lord says. Hold that thought. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you. Cannibalism will set in. Sons will eat their fathers. I will execute judgments on you. 
You know, I'm glad he says fathers will eat their sons before sons will eat their fathers. That way, at least, you know, in my house, I believe the father should come to the table first. But he says, I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. Verse 11, surely as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity, nor will I... And I will not spare. And we're going to see this, God withdrawing from the sanctuary. Ezekiel portrays this in a stunning way, the departure of the Spirit of God from the sanctuary. And he says it's because you've put idols in my temple, which is one of the most stunning things. We see that in chapter 8. Verse 12, one-third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you, and one-third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheath the sword behind them. Verse 13, thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and I will be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. How do we reconcile verse 9? when we know the Roman devastation was worse. I will not do the like of this again. And yet we see this happen again. And as far as I understand, the only way we can do that is to understand this prophecy goes far beyond 586 B.C. That this is not a prophecy of the immediate siege and fall of Jerusalem at this point. It is a prophecy of down the line. It is a future prophecy that speaks of and goes to the absolute desolation of the land and the dispersion of the people that happened after 70 A.D., when the times of the Gentiles get fully underway. We know at that time Israel, though never forgotten, understand, never forgotten by God and never replaced, Israel at that point became sidelined. Set aside, if you will, by choice, tangential, to the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. And that was taken up by the church. Israel, not forgotten, not replaced, but set aside in their rebellion. And the times of the Gentiles get underway and the church age begins. Paul explains it this way, Romans 11, verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, not, and ears to hear, not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Why bend their backs? The weight, the dead weight of sin. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And so I believe the prophecy we're seeing here in chapter 5 is actually speaking out to the desolation that would come after 70 A.D., after 135 A.D. Verse 14, Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you. In the sight of all those who pass by, it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, an object of horror to the nations. Note that, a warning. This is a warning for all the nations. This is so all the world can see what I did with Israel, who rebelled against me, that it might be a warning to them. 
He says, an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I will send to destroy you. And you get that? He was... And these arrows were intended for the enemies of Israel, now get turned on to Israel itself in their own rebellion. And then, I will also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you the famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Four signs. Graphic illustrations of exactly what God is doing at that time in Judah, in Israel, to the Jewish people, and what will happen down the line. Now Ezekiel finally gets to speak, but not to the people. Verse 1 of chapter 6, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel, and prophesy against them. So he's still not talking directly to the exiles. He's portraying all of this stuff, the signs over the tablet, But now he has to turn his eyes toward Israel to the west, toward the mountains of Israel, and he begins to prophesy against the mountains. Now the exiles will hear it. These words of warning to the mountains would be awakening for the exiles. The mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel include such towns, such uh, provinces as Bethel, Ai, Shiloh, Shechem, Bethany, Bethlehem, Hebron, and of course, right at the center of it all, Jerusalem. If you take an aerial view of Israel, past, present, or future, in fact, you can look on your Bible maps, if you just draw a circle around those towns, Bethel, Ai, Shiloh, Shechem, Bethany, Bethlehem, Hebron, and Jerusalem, it is the heart of Israel. Dead center in the land. This is Israel. Right in the middle. Today, that exact same region has been politicized as the West Bank. It's all that area on the western bank of the Jordan River, and all these towns are there, and it's right up the middle of the heart of Israel. Do you understand why the Jewish people do not want to give up the West Bank? It is the heart of their land. But why prophesy against the mountains of Israel? Well, because at that time, these were the places that were home to the high places of idolatry, of idol worship. Verse 3, Say to the mountains of Israel, Listen to the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys, Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate. And your incense altars will be smashed, and I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Then all your dwelling cities will become waste, and the high places will become desolate. That your altars may become waste and desolate, your idols will be broken and brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be blotted out. And I remind you, King Josiah did that. He was the king who got rid of all the high places, destroyed all the idolatry, cleansed the entire land, having a major revival in the land. King Josiah was the fifth 
of the five or the first of the last five kings when Jeremiah came along. The land was cleansed of this, but by the time Ezekiel's prophesying just a few generations later, it is rife with idolatry and high places, rebuilt and reestablished after the passing of King Josiah. The slain will fall among you, and you will know, verse 7, that I am the Lord. All this death around the altars, why? Because idolatry kills you. Because worshiping anything other than the Lord God, giving preeminence in your life to anything other than Jesus Christ, is going to kill you. And the people face that in their idolatry. However, however... I will leave a remnant for you. I will leave a remnant for you. will have those who escape from the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. And then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they have been carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turn away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Oh, there's so much here. I'm going to leave you a remnant in the land. And there has always been a Jewish presence in the land. There has never been a t- Understand, there has never been a time when there have not been Jewish people living in Israel. Even the 1800 and some odd years that it was called Palestine, there were Jewish people residing in the land, a remnant of Jews in and on the land. And it's interesting, he says, that those of you who escape will remember me, verse 9. And of course they do. Through all of their diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish people, they remembered. Somehow they remained Jewish. They continued Passover. They kept their Sabbath, even in these foreign countries. They remember the Lord, just as He said they would. And note he says, how I have been hurt, verse 9, by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me. That phrase, I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, is moving because it speaks or indicates the compassionate, broken heart of God. But that's probably not the best translation. A better translation is literally, I have broken their adulterous hearts. I've broken their adulterous hearts. I point that out because... God breaks the heart of the sinner that they might come to real repentance. It is how God works. And we need to get out of the way. Sometimes we have a friend who's just broken and torn up and we want to solve it and we want to fix it. And sometimes, out of love and compassion, the best thing you can do is allow them the pain of their sin choice. Because it is in that brokenheartedness that God can draw someone then to repent and truly be healed. So don't jump right in and try and solve it and try and soft pedal it and try and say, ah, you know, I know, I know the outcome of, yeah, you did that bad thing, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be okay. No, let it be bad. Let it hurt. Rick, that sounds harsh. No, it's compassion for eternity. Let it hurt right now so there might be salvation for them. Because if we just try and soothe over all the outcome of sin in the world around us, like psychology does, let's just soothe. Let's make it easier for people to do what they're going to do. And what do we do? We sign them up for hell. As opposed to allowing them hurt now that they might be saved for heaven 
That's the heart of the Lord, to break the heart of the lost. And it is a good prayer to pray, by the way. If you have someone who you know is in rebellion and in sin, to literally pray, Lord Jesus, break her heart. Out of love for them, Father, break his heart that he might repent to you. Verse 10. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. And again, the grand fulfillment of this prophecy was fully felt in the diaspora, which began in AD 70 and was intensified in 135 AD, where the Jews were finally driven out. The land was renamed Palestina. You know the history of that. The land became a desolation. A desolation. But as I said, even when the land became desolate, there remained in Israel and in Jerusalem, at the heart of Israel, there remained a remnant of Jewish people. Always have been. There's always been a Jewish presence. Uh, In his book, Holy War for the Promised Land, David Dolan wrote the following. Official records listed 43 Jewish communities in the 6th century. Twelve along the coast, in the Negev, and east of the Jordan River, and 31 in the Galilee and in the Jordan Valley. 43 Jewish communities in the 6th century in Israel at a time where everybody thought, oh, the Jews are gone. No, they weren't. They were still there. There was still the remnant that God promised would be there. Always a Jewish presence. And the land, and this is remarkable, God makes this this twofold prophecy. I will leave a remnant of my people in the land, and the land will be desolate. And I quote to you again, I've done this before, from Mark Twain's book, Innocence Abroad, which he wrote in 1860 after visiting the Holy Land, and he wrote, The Hallowed Spot, where the shepherds watched their flocks by night, and where the angels sang, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, is untenanted by any living creature. And the desert places around about them sleep in the hush of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes. Mark Twain traveled the land and said, it's desolate. There's nothing holy about this land. It's just barren. A wasteland. The Lord said back in Leviticus 26, verse 33, You I will scatter among the nations, and I will draw out a sword after you, as your land becomes desolate and your cities become a waste. The mountains of Israel. Son of man, prophesy against the mountains of Israel, the once rich and fertile and fruitful and beautiful mountains of Israel with Jerusalem at the center. And it became a desolation for all to see. Just as God said it would. Now, put this together. The faithfulness of the Lord in following through with exactly what He said. But the Lord is not done with the mountains of Israel. And in fact, through Ezekiel, He revisits them. Real quickly, skip up ahead to Ezekiel 36. I just want to give you a taste of what's coming. Ezekiel 36, verse 8. While you're turning there in verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Down in verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches, and you will bear fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it, 
and the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. And gang, those three verses come alive when you walk through the land today. It is fertile. It is, I've told you before, the number three exporter. Exporter of fruit in the world comes from tiny Israel. You go through the Jordan Valley, the green, the vegetation, the fruit, it's unbelievable. And the people spreading throughout the land, we in this generation are seeing Ezekiel 36 come into fulfillment. We are seeing the mountains of Israel revisited by the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord to destroy and to desolate Israel. Now we're seeing the faithfulness of the Lord to cultivate and restore the mountains of Israel. His mountains, not the West Bank. Interesting, in the Six-Day War, 1967, Israel retook the mountains of Israel. And it's been since that time that this fruitfulness has been unfolding before our eyes. And yet, this is still the portion of land politicians seek to divide. I'm, I'm asked the question from time to time, well, Rick, do you think it's going to be divided? I don't want it to be, but yes, I do. I believe the division is going to happen. Well, why so? Because the prophet Joel, chapter 3, verse 2 the Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So I think, yes, the land will be divided again, and it will be part of the reason God comes into judgment at Megiddo, Armageddon. Well, verse 11, chapter 6, Thus says the Lord God, Clap your hands, stamp your foot, and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. He who is far off will die by the plague. He who is near will fall by the sword. And he who remains and is besieged will die by the famine. Thus I will spend my wrath on them. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Notice how many times he keeps saying that. I told you, this is a major phrase of the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When their slain are among their idols around their altars, on every high hill, and on all the tops of the mountains, and under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, the places where they offered soothing aroma to their idols, so throughout all their habitations I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and waste than the wilderness toward Deblah, Thus they will know that I am the Lord. So he says, clap your hands, Ezekiel. Stamp your feet. This is not, you know, a hoedown. <laughs> this is not foot stomping action. This is not, yes, all right, God is destroying the land. Some have suggested that it is. I actually read some scholars who made the point they believe there's some kind of strange divine pleasure going on here. Yeah, I said I'd destroy. Look at me destroy. Yay me. That's not what's happening. Our, uh, our dog, Reggie, is going deaf. Either that or he's completely rebellious. It's got to be one of the two. But there are only two sounds that he now responds to. If I use a really high-pitched voice and call his name, if I say, Reggie, he'll, he'll turn around. That's it. That's the only way. Otherwise, if he's, you know, wandering off out the door and we're, hey, come back, Reggie, come back inside. Reggie, Reggie, he stops. 
My house is a circus. I, I can't even tell you. The noises that emanate on a daily basis from my house are, are remarkable. But the other thing that will catch his attention, clap the hands. If you clap your hands, he'll, he'll stop and look around. That's what's going on here. This is not a hand clap of joy and stamping of, of happiness. This is attention-getting devices. The Lord says to Ezekiel, Hey, Ezekiel, if the people are getting slightly sleepy at this point, clap your hands, wake them up. This is awakening time. You've got to pay attention. Why? Because your idols will kill you. Exiles in Babylon, look around. Look at all the idolatry. It's death. It's a heavy weight. It is a burden. It will take you down. Pay attention. And by the way, there are two kinds of sacrifices that will kill you in this life. Two sacrifices that will be the death of you. Number one, we will either die sacrificing to our idols, or we will die as living sacrifices to the Lord. We can sacrifice to the world, or we can be living sacrifices. Paul said, Romans 12.1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Ezekiel comes to the end of the first series of prophecies given in the first year of his calling. And remember, as we began, these are prophecies of awakening. Chapter 7, very quickly. Chapter 7, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, to the land of Israel. He's still not prophesying to the exiles. (laughs) Prophesied to the mountains. Prophesied to the land. So he's prophesying to the land. And listen to what he says. An end. The end is coming on the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you. Prophecy not to the exiles, but to the land. And chapter 7, like Jeremiah's Lamentations, is a funeral dirge. Chapter 7, if we could see it in the Hebrew, we can't. If we could, we would see a lamentation, an elegy, a song in beautiful and painful language. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger against you, I will judge you according to your ways and bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will have no pity on you, nor will I spare you. But I will bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, unique disaster. Behold, it is coming, an end is coming. This is kind of the refrain of the song. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it has come. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come, the day is near. Tumult rather than joyful shouting on the mountains. After the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941, it's said that Admiral Isoruku Yamamoto of the Japanese uh, fleet made this statement. I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with terrible resolve. We're pretty sure that's true. After all, it was in Torah, Torah, Torah. So if you saw that movie, you know. That's what he said. I don't know if he said that or not. Historians don't seem to back it up. But here's the point. At this point, the Lord's anger 
which seemed to have been slumbering has been awakened. The wrath of God is wide-eyed now, no longer snoozing, wide awake, and the end has come. What's interesting is the Hebrew word doom. In verse 7, your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. It's a difficult word to translate. It's the word sephira. And sephira is also used in this way. Isaiah 28, verse 5. In that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem. Sephira. To the remnant of his people. He will become, he'll be a, a crown, a diadem, a glorious doom. No, it's not a glorious doom. It's a glorious crown. A diadem is a kind of a crown. So the word sephira, here translated doom, can be translated crown, but that doesn't fit the context. Does it? it your crown has come to you? I mean, unless he's talking about you know crowning them, that, but that's... So what does the word mean? The word can also be translated mourning. Your mourning has come. Judgment day for Jerusalem has dawned. And verse 8, he says, I will shortly pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you, judge you according to your ways, and bring on you all your abominations. My eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways, While your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I, the Lord, do the smiting. If this song had a title, if we were going to sing it, put it up on PowerPoint, it would probably be entitled either, My Eye Will Show No Pity, or it could just be entitled, The End. In which case, the last Beatles song on their final record, Abbey Road, would probably be a copyright infringement. I don't know. Verse 10. Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about sometimes. (laughs) Behold the day, behold it is coming. Your doom, your mourning, your sephirah has gone forth. The rod has budded, arrogance has blossomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness and none of them shall remain, none of their people, none of their wealth, nor anything imminent among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for the wrath is against all their multitude. Indeed, the seller will not regain what he has sold as long as they both live. For the vision regarding all their multitude will not be averted, nor will any of them maintain his life by his iniquity. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but no one is going to battle, for my wrath is against all their multitude. The sword is outside, and the plague and the famine are within." He who is in the field will die by the sword. Famine and the plague will also consume those in the city. Even when their survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, because doves, according to Prince, doves cry, each uh, over his own iniquity. Verse 17, all hands will hang limp and knees will become water. They will gird themselves with sackcloth and shuddering will overwhelm them and shame will be on all faces and baldness on all their heads. They will fling their silver into the streets and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Those of you who are buying up lots of gold, their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite nor can they fill their stomachs for the iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. Do you get what's happening here? What does this sound like? This sounds to me like tribulation. 
This sounds like final judgment. The day has come. And there is nothing that can save you in that day if you have not already been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. They transform the beauty of His ornaments into pride. His ornaments there is the temple. And the the things of the temple. They made the images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. Therefore, I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. I will give it into the hands of the foreigners as plunder and to the wicked of the earth as spoil and they will profane it. Now, wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar burned down the temple. Titus in AD 70 burned down the temple. They didn't profane the temple. They burned it. Which I guess is profaning to a degree. But this seems to be speaking beyond that in bigger prophetic language. My opinion, again, that we're talking about a temple that is raised up in the tribulation and profaned by man. Later destroyed by the coming of the Lord. I will also turn my face from them and they will profane my secret place and then robbers will enter and profane it. Make the chain. Verse 23. For the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. Verse 22 indicates God turns His face away and evil flourishes. That's what happened at Calvary. So God turned His face away. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Because when God turns His face away, evil triumphs. Evil flourishes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't the first time Jesus spoke those words, by the way. It was the second time. The first time was when the Spirit of Christ downloaded that same phrase to David in Psalm 22, verse 1. A psalm of the crucifixion. An amazing description of the morning of Jesus' death. And going back to that word morning, guess what Psalm 22 is called? The hind of the morning. The deer of the morning. Jesus' death took place in the morning. Israel's collapse taking place in the morning. Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His face turned away in the morning. And verse 23, he's told to make one more visual prophecy. God commands Ezekiel here, make a chain. I want you to make a chain not symbolizing captivity, but symbolizing the forging of their own sin. Make the chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Forge this chain before them and show them this is your sin. The closest parallel that that came to mind for me, maybe for you, is Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. When Jacob Marley is talking to Scrooge and he says, and I quote, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I guarded it of my own free will and by my own free will I wore it. So God says, make a chain. This is symbolic of the chain of their sin. Our sin that is a heavy weight. Our sin that binds us up and entangles us. That's what sin does. There's nothing good about it. Isaiah 59.12 Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. So where do you go? When the entanglements and the weight of your sin is too much. Verse 24 Therefore I will bring the worst of the nations and they will possess their houses. I will also make the pride of the strong ones cease and their holy places will be profaned. And when anguish comes... They will seek peace, but there will be none. 
Disaster will come upon disaster and rumor will be added to rumor and then they will seek a vision from the prophet. But the law will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. Hold it right there. One more thing here. Notice this. As it's all falling down around them, Israel in 586 and in AD 70 and in the tribulation as it's all falling down in the world, they seek a revelation from a prophet. And there is none. They pursue instruction from the law from a priest. But nothing helps. They desperately desire counsel from the city elders. Tell us what to do! And nothing works. I read that and I thought, how like our world today. You know, when people ignore godly revelation and biblical instruction and wise Christian counsel, when they ignore it for so long, there comes a point in time where there is none left when the people come asking. Where is the world going to go for godly counsel after the church is raptured? Where is the wisdom going to be? Where will be those who can instruct in the Word of God? Where are those who can offer peace where there is no peace? And this is exactly what we see happening then. A picture in Jerusalem at the center of nations and it's spreading out for us, gang. And this is the direction of the entire world. This is where we're going. Verse 27, the king will mourn. The prince will be clothed with horror. And the hands of the people of the land will tremble. According to their conduct, I will deal with them. And by their judgments, I will judge them. And they will know that I am the Lord. And I thought Jeremiah was heavy. I remind you the exiles couldn't do a single thing about these prophecies. They could hear it, but it would do nothing. They could do nothing in response because these are not words of warning in the night. These are words of awakening in the morning. These are words designed and pictures designed to draw out faith from those already in exile. And in reading that, I don't know if it's this way for you, but in chapter 7, I found myself asking, what will it be like on earth on the last morning? I'm talking about on the morning of judgment. The end of the tribulation, when all of God's wrath has been poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That final morning of the day of the coming of Christ. You see, for the believer... The coming of Christ and being called up to meet Him in the air is joy and comfort and peace and everything good. But for the non-believer, the second coming of Jesus to set foot on the Mount of Olives is terror. And that morning of that day, four words in this prophecy absolutely grip the heart. The end has come. In all our Bible studies, all of our conversations, and all of the attempts that perhaps we have made in this life to get through to people, the end has come. And so as certain as the fall of Jerusalem in history, so will be the end of this earth. And I am among those who believe mourning is almost here. So I leave you with these words. Paul in Ephesians 5.14 Awake, sleeper, 
and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Let's bow. Father, may we not leave here under the burden of the end, but under the awakening of Christ Jesus. May we walk out of here desiring, Jesus, that You will shine on us. May we be those who don't sleep as those who do their sleeping. As those of the night. And let us not be drunk as those who get drunk in the night. Let us be sober, children of the day, as Paul wrote. Awake and alert. Wide awake, Father, in these last days. And may Christ shine on us that we might reflect the glory of the Gospel. That we would be, I continue to pray for my life and for all of us, Lord, that we might be so different, so reflective of the character of Jesus, that we will see people saved before the end comes, before that final day. This we know is the work of Your Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So we pray, Holy Spirit, convict. We pray, break hearts where You need to. And use us to bring a word in season, a word of revelation, a word of instruction, a word of counsel. Use us, Lord, for these things until You call us home. And may Your word be in our hearts, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen.